0: The United States Constitution, a document written nearly 250 years ago, continues to dictate politics in 2017. According to the political scientist, author, and University of Chicago Professor William Howell, this is a problem. In his new book, Relic, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency, Dr. Howell argues that the political institutions we inherited from the Founding Fathers were simply not designed to solve the problems we face today. In a live conversation with Ivy, Dr. Howe expands on this argument and explains why it might not be such a bad idea to rewrite the centuries-old constitution to create a better path forward for 21st century democracy. What I'd like to do first uh, is, I think, you know, I'm hoping that you would agree with me on this. Regardless of political affiliation, um, Americans are disgruntled, disillusioned perhaps depressed, I mean, I would be in that (laughs) category, with the... Angry. And angry, yeah, that's a good one too. Um, With the ineffectiveness of U.S. government today, perhaps it's the only bipartisan issue that we can experience today. Um, So today what I'd like to do is cover a few topics and one or two questions on each. First, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, your book, some of the arguments that you present in the book Relic. Uh, the, Trump pres- uh, the Trump presidency, the rise of populism, the current state of democracy in the United States, and then ultimately your perspective on the future of American democracy as well.
1: But we're going to cover it, aren't we? We're going
0: we're to <laughs> do it, uh, and we're going to be here all night. So <laughs> hey, settle in. <laughs> if we can get a bottle of wine here, that'd be great. <laughs> if we really want it to be exciting. <laughs> Uh, but first, I think before we ask questions about you know, what does American democracy look like, why is it designed the way that it is, I think it's important to first discuss um, why it functions the way that it functions and where does that originate. Um, in your book, Relic, uh, How Our Constitution Undermines Effective Government and Why We Need a More Powerful Presidency, um, you present a very fascinating and perhaps a provocative and controversial argument whereby you point to the inefficiencies of of government and and Congress. And you make the case that these inefficiencies are not simply mistakes by elected officials, nor are they um, a product of incompetencies of elected officials, but more so that it is a product of a flawed constitution in the way in which it's written and designed. Um, I'd like for you to give us a, a brief lecture on how this argument of yours came about and what the evidence suggests. So let's start with that. Oh,
1: sketch it out. Okay, I'll sketch it out. So, I like that. Um, So here's the idea. The idea is as follows. Um, When the founders gathered some 200 almost 50 years ago, they didn't have in mind the political system that we have today. They didn't have in mind the kinds of problems that we confront today. Um, and they, uh, their, their, their purposes were not our purposes. Um, and they designed a government that was meant to do very little um, for a country that was uh, separated from most of the rest of the world that consisted of fewer than four million people, um, 95% of whom were farmers, full-time farmers, 700,000 of whom were slaves, uh, and you had white-property men, the only sort of folks who were engaged meaningfully in making decisions. And then you think, all right, what is the product of that that setting and the objectives, the, the political objectives that were being advanced then, um, and then you say, what, 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 what did they create? Well, they created a political system um, that was schizophrenic. It was schizophrenic because, on the one hand, there was a recognition that the government needed to be able to do certain things, it needed to be able to pay off revolutionary debt, and needed to be able to protect the country. That's true; those are real things. Um, just as um, they were really concerned about too much authority being vested in a national government or in any individual. Um, They believed in democracy in the sense that they believed in popular engagement, that that the views of average citizens ought to matter in some sense. But not only did they think that the franchise should be highly restricted, but they also thought that we needed all kinds of protections about even those white property men, because they too were ignorant and venal and short-sighted, and so we have things like the Electoral College and staggered elections and separation of powers. Um, and and so, look, the, what 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 were their purposes? They had many purposes. Um, it, part of it was about addressing real problems. Part of it was about ensuring that the the the, the The majority not become a tyranny of the majority, that uh, the confines of government be somewhat protected. Um, And I think it's worth asking whether or not we in our age should simply import those objectives and and import those commitments um, in a world where you have massive inequalities between the rich and poor, an unbelievably complex economic system, a world in which we sit atop uh, internationally um, the global system. If not alone, we're certainly up there. Um, a world that is getting hotter and hotter every day, a world in which we have greater and greater numbers of, of population movements. And so part of the impetus for writing the book is to try to think about the ways in which Our political institutions that we inherited from that moment, which I characterized, are the right institutions to solve the kinds of problems that we face today. And that is a relevant criteria for thinking about the quality of government that we have. That is, the capacity of the government to solve problems. Does it solve them well? And I would suggest that nobody should be satisfied with the capacity of our government to solve problems. That isn't to say that we don't do, the government doesn't do good things. It isn't to say that the government should do everything. That's not the argument. The argument is, do we have institutions that can design policy that allows us to meet the challenges that a polity thinks are the subject of legitimate public action? Um, And... To my mind, to my co-author's mind, Terry Moe, who is, uh, he was actually my advisor when I was a graduate student at, at Stanford. Um, and we've been friends for a long time and think about things pretty similarly. Um, the answer's no, um, and no for a variety of reasons. I don't know when you want me to stop, but I will just keep going <laughs> if you don't stop me. Uh, no, look,
0: uh, I do want to stop there because you, 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 were, you were touching a bit on the, the intent of the Constitution. And I think that that I want to speak for everybody here, but I I would suggest that when we envision what democracy is to, you know, supposed to function like and how it's supposed to behave and what it means, uh, what American democracy means, you know, I think think personally that it's, you know, um, everyone is equal. Uh, All voices are heard. Uh, Majority rules. Um, I think you kind of know where I'm going here. The question, I think, for me is, were the founders of our Constitution, um, were they, I'm going to make up a word here, but were they majoritarians? Um, are we making a false assumption of what we believe American democracy should look like today, uh, but it's just simply not real?
1: <sighs> <laughs> so, I look, again, this is where... Go back to that moment. It's white-propertyed men who get to participate in politics. If we're going to talk about the majority of anybody, we're going to talk about them, in which case we're decidedly not talking about a majority. Point number one. Mm -hmm. Point number two is even for that group, there was deep suspicion about their capacity to self-govern, which is why we wanted to have an enlightened they want they we wanted they they suggested we want to have an enlightened class of electors who would not this electoral college that we have was not just an accounting scheme for how you count votes it was also there was an expectation that they would intervene and say where well, there's been a mistake because the, the 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 passions of the mob have taken hold and they're going to provide a rational corrective that they would step in that you didn't have direct election of uh-huh. senators right you went through state el- state uh, legislatures um that you have staggered elections all these things are checks against the will of your majority whose views that we ought to be caring about now now what we have done over in 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 ways that are painfully slow and halting and and uh Uh, uh, it comes in fits and starts, but we have attended to issues of representation. I mean, where you see changes to the Constitution, for the most part, have to do with issues of what does the franchise constitute? Who does get to participate in politics? What we haven't done is had a serious and sustained conversation that implicates the Constitution about the machinery of government that we we inherited from that original moment. And to say, is that the right machinery for us to make decisions today about how we solve problems like, and you all can fill in the blanks, right, about what they are, Um, and that we need to have that that when you think about ineffective government, ineffective government, it's all over, the tax code is a disaster. You may like or dislike the proposal that's being put forward right now. The status quo is deeply problematic. You may like or dislike the idea of repealing and replacing Obamacare, but the healthcare system as a whole is a tangled mess on which we spend gobs of money and and recover not the best health returns. When you think about how we're spending those the, 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 that that money, and we can go on, and those are those are places where the government is already fully invested. There are other domains like climate change where you think, here's this big issue, that clearly implicates the government in some ways. How are we going to tend to that? The idea that the machinery of government that we inherited, right, two hundred and forty years ago, is the right right machinery, to make sense of those kinds of problems, it's not in the least bit obvious. Um, and, and therefore, this impulse that characterizes contemporary political discourse that many people, I suspect, in this room lament, right? Uh-huh. That they think, like, the quality of our political conversation is deeply troubled, and it is, and it's deeply troubled for lots of reasons. The polarization of the parties, the levels of disagreement, the lack of attention to facts. Yes, yes, yes. Another way in which it is, it is problematic is um, that there's a significant strain in our discourse that's of the form what Terry and I would call constitution worship. It's this sense of, ah, the reason why our politics are troubled today is that we've lost our way. And if we could just, right, recover that original mm-hmm. moment, we could find our way back to a time that was simple and true and principled and enlightened, then, um, then we'd be okay. And and, and maybe it's the wine in me speaking, but that's where we want to say, we want, we want to say bullshit, right? Mm-hmm, that's sure. where we want to know that original moment was not where we're going to find our way today that we have plenty of much to, we have lots to be indebted for and to be grateful for and to learn from. But we need to own this moment for ourselves and have the kinds of conversations about Not just what optimal policy looks like, but what kinds of political institutions we're going to have.
0: Um, I want to to transition a bit to Congress. Because I've heard you um, in in various lectures and talks and and so forth make the argument, um, yes, Congress is indeed the center of our government and is a decision-making body. Yet, the elected members of that body are intrinsically and especially... um, interested in short-term parochial matters only. Um, why is that, and is, is it forever going to be that way if the Constitution remains as it is?
1: Yeah, so, um, it's not forever going to be the case, and it isn't the case for all legislators. And when you think about Congress, I think a a habit that we fall into is we say, well, who's our favorite legislator or or our favorite congressional moment where there was rich, Mm -hmm. vibrant deliberation. Right. And we were struggling about the big issues of the day. Right. And finding our way through in ways that were, you know, lurching, but true. And where we want to come in is to say, look, think about, The design of the institution um, and the kinds of incentives that it creates for people to pay attention to some issues and not to other issues. And then it isn't the case that the design of the institution will, you know, grab every legislator by his or her ears and fixate it exclusively on that subset of issues. But there will be meaningful reasons for them to pay attention to some issues to the exclusion of others. So how do we think about the design of Congress? Well, the design of Congress is that what we're going to do is we're going to chop up the country into 435 districts today. right? 435 districts where people actually, the, people, the electors who come from, the elected officials who come from it you actually get to vote, 435 and 50 states. And we're going to say whether or not you hold office is going to be a function of whether or not you can get a plurality of people in that district, not in the state, not in the country, in that district, to uh, support you. And then, if you're in the House, we're going to ask you to run every two years. And you think, what kinds of incentives does that create for legislators to think about? And it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that it encourages legislators to pay attention to local issues, to the exclusion of national issues, certainly to the exclusion of international issues, local issues, and short-term issues, right? It's about, when I think about healthcare policy, in all of its complexity, if I'm coming from the 4th District of Illinois, I'm thinking about how is that healthcare policy going to affect my district, and more to the point, the organized, powerful interests within my district. Mm-hmm. And you have that one legislator at a time running all the way through. And so they're all thinking about, well, what about mine? What about mine? What about, how is this going to affect my district? And the idea that if you bring, if you harness all those views, and you, ha- you put them in, in interaction with one another, that out will come something that, is a, that approximates the best interests of the nation as a whole, you're fooling yourself. This is where what you get is um, uh, a, a branch of government, the first branch of government, it's a feeding trough for special interests and for powerful interests that are going to again and again fixate on how policy translates today for their local interests and they're not going to be thinking about the ways in which policy coheres integrates and is attentive to what would be in the best interests of a country as a whole. Mm-hmm. And and that's we get that from the constitution. That's the design of Congress from the constitution. And Article 1 of the constitution that Congress is not just a branch but the first branch of government. And that has meaningful implications for our ability to solve problems today.
0: You, you touched on support. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the brand of American democracy. There are versions um, of democracy throughout the world. A study by Martin Gillens at Princeton mm-hmm. recently showed that US collectively spends over three billion, that's a B, each year from lobbying organizations to influence government decisions. That's an enormous number. I think we would, would all agree with that. So here's, here's a thought that I have, and I'd like it's a three-part question. I oh know boy. you're gonna hate me for that, and I'll help you get through the three part. Even if a trustworthy, good-hearted person were elected to Congress today, she still would have to spend the large majority of her time fundraising just to remain in office. Not not even to be effective in creating good policy, but just to stay elected. majority of her time is spent fundraising. Also, the U.S. democratic system existed for nearly two centuries before women and African Americans could vote. Three-part question. One question. Have we become or have we always been a plutocracy governed by just the wealthy? Second question. Are we just a democracy in name only? And then the last part is, does the design of our political institutions actually discourage intelligent and competent people from running hmm. for office? Uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, up, up until now, our conversation has been about the design of institutions where I like to keep it, right? <laughs> and, and to say that a legislator is fighting vigorously on behalf of her local short-term interests isn't to say that her work is illegitimate, mm-hmm. that it, it should play no role in our politics. And it certainly isn't to say that she's somehow incompetent or corrupt. That said, to your first question, which involved the plutocracy, mm-hmm. organized, powerful money and interests have always had uh, a lot of say um, over our politics. That is. Always been true. And that goes all the way back to the founding moment. Mm -hmm. That's for sure true. Um, Do they exert more influence today than they did 50 years ago? I actually think the evidence is somewhat mixed on this front. Mm -hmm. A lot of political scientists look into this and they try to look at the translation of donations to policy outcomes, and they have a hard time showing a causal relationship between the two. Um, Donations to electoral outcomes who wins a race? They have a hard time showing the relationship between the two. But that isn't to say that money and interests are not incredibly powerful. But there's a fatalism to your <laughs> right question, which is that they've always been and they always will be. And I would resist that. Mm-hmm. I think that there are moments where people band together and they can meaningfully push back. Mm-hmm. Um, and they can reshape our, 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 our discourse and then, and then the kinds of decisions that elected officials make. That there's a space that can be recovered. The thing that I get excited about these kinds of events is this is a prime space in which those sorts of conversations can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so so no, we, it doesn't lock in. We don't have a political system that locks in that certain people get to have their way and nobody else does. Mm-hmm. It's always contested. That was your... First, What mm-hmm. was your second?
0: Second one was our, well, uh, the, the shadow question was, are we a democracy in name
1: only? Oh, yeah. No, no, we aren't a democracy in the sense that we're a republic, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we are. We don't gather and, you know, we don't gather all 300 and change million Americans and say, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down on mm-hmm. repealing and replacing mm-hmm. Obamacare, sure. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then count the thumbs. Sure. But um, we do on the president. But we do on the president. We have an electoral college. We don't do that, but we should. Do. Mm. I'm all for getting <laughs> yeah. rid of the electoral. We can have that conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But no, we w- if we were counting majority votes, mm-hmm. we would not have a President Trump today. Now with I know collective well, side. Right, I, <laughs> I, <yeah. laughs> that I heard you. The I, think. I know. I heard you. So there is that. There is that. Now, to, to, to be fair to President Trump, he also was running a race with a defined set of rules, and he won according to those rules. And it doesn't follow that if we had a straight plurality system got rid of the electoral college, yeah. that, that he would have changed his behavior, as would have Clinton, and we don't know exactly what that electoral outcome would have been. Um, uh, but but n- n- no, there are all kinds of ways in which the interests of the masses are uh, a step or four removed from the decisions that are actually made. And so when you, there are a number of innovations trying to democratize our politics, the rise of primaries. Uh We didn't always have primaries, right? That's an innovation. Um, The, 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 uh, um, having, a having, um, um, Policies put before a state where they get to vote on, a, on a, like a, as in referenda, right? Is a, is born of the progressive era, which is an effort to kind of move the decision-making process down mm-hmm. to the people and away from corrupt organized parties or away from elected officials. But n- no, we don't have a, a pure democracy and never have had. And your last one was:
0: Do, do you do you believe that? Um the good people that should be running for office, and I'm not suggesting oh. that the people that are running for office are not good people, but that there are should there, there there should be an incentive for more good people to run for office. Yes, and are they deterred? Are they discouraged by the complexities in Congress or the need to consistently and constantly fundraise?
1: Um, yes, and but I wouldn't want to limit it just to fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is a much bigger deal when you think about local politics. There's plenty of talented people who want to be president. There are plenty of talented people in the main who want to be members of Congress. It's not obvious that around the country there are plenty of talented people who want to serve on school boards and city councils. And there, the role of money isn't quite as pronounced. Mm-hmm. It's not to say that money doesn't play a role. It decidedly does. But as a barrier to entry, it's not quite as great. But what you might say is the kinds of barriers of entry that you observe there have to do in this town with, uh, at least historically, one-party rule. That's going to be a big part of it. You, we need to talk about issues of uh, uh, sex and um, and race and the kinds of disincentives in a system that... that, that uh, uh, wherein powerful interests aren't especially interested in getting behind women or people of color, that that creates real disincentives from Mm -hmm. quality people Mm -hmm. stepping forward. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I guess if I were to look for where is this the biggest problem, I would look at the local level and I would expand out Mm -hmm. the kinds of um, barriers to attracting really high-quality folk, such as I suspect there are in this room, uh, from thinking about running. There's a way, too, though, in which Man, when it gets sufficiently bad, um, I can bring some folk out. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't mean sufficiently bad in terms of what it takes to run, but I mean sufficiently bad in terms of our politics. And if you're looking for a silver lining in contemporary American politics, that's where it lies. It's that, and I I don't mean this to be political in the sense of affirming people on the left or on the right. But I think there's a widespread sense that our politics are, are, are broken and deeply troubled and that that is drawing out some folk who say it's mm-hmm. not okay, right? Mm-hmm. It's not okay. Maybe, maybe I should be stepping in. Maybe I should try to be making a difference. If we're looking for a silver lining, I think that's where it's at.
0: Since 1970, oh. and I'm interested in your perspective on this. Since 1970, we, we've gone from 35 uh, democracies globally To roughly 115 democracies in 2015. Mm -hmm. That suggests to me that democracy is the preferred default political system globally. Would you would you agree with that, or is the parliamentary system a better fit, given the dynamics that we see play out in the in the U.S.?
1: Well, a parliamentary system can be a democracy as Mm -hmm. well, right? Right, right? So so you don't have to be a a presidential system Mm -hmm. to be a democracy, which is what we've got here. And in fact, most countries that are democracies are parliamentary in nature, that is, right? So you've got Latin America and a couple countries in, in Africa that are, are presidential systems. But I think the, the answer is a qualified yes. That it, do we, see, the, the, the big contours in political history worldwide suggest that there's going to be a oh. rising growth of democracy, yes. Um, but watch out for backsliding, one, right? Watch out for backsliding. And what it means to be a democracy uh, is multifaceted. Oh. It's not like a light switch. You turn on and you're like, ta-da, we're in a democracy. All right, we're good, right? You can think about continuously freedom of the press, the capacity of people to run for office, the freedoms that are given to people to organize and to speak out, that these things are all, we can have more or less of all of those things and the more we have of those, the, the the more of a democracy that we have, and 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 the more um, kind of flourishing and engaged a populace is, the the more robust that democracy is. And so, when we have rules that are geared towards, if not disenfranchising, then certainly discouraging certain pop, members of the population from voting. And that's a, that's a push back against these trends. And those, that's a pushback that we observe domestically. We don't mm-hmm. have to go abroad to see that. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, there's reason for optimism, right? We got a lot more democracy worldwide today than we did 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but that required work, nothing's assured. There are also plenty of evidence of democracies backsliding back into autocracies. Mm-hmm. Um, and what it means to be a democracy can mean many different things.
0: So you're giving us some hope. Yeah. And, and you're saying we should be optimistic. So yeah. I'd like to transition and talk about the Trump presidency. Talk about despair. <laughs> um, <laughs> and get your perspective on a variety of questions. So um, populism so. is the political buzzword of the day. And it seems that uh, populist politics have carved a very strong niche Um for itself in the political landscape today, obviously with the with the Trump presidency and everything that comes with that, the rise of Le Pen in France and a variety of other examples. Um, however, the fun to the fundamental building blocks of what populist, populism is and is not is in stark contrast with its relationship with democracy. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I that's my that's my opinion. Um, I'd like for you to walk us through. Um, What is populism? What is it not? Uh, And should we view populism with optimism or with fear?
1: Okay. Deep breath. You didn't say a three-parter, but you just gave me a (laughs) three-parter. Right. Okay. So what is populism? Uh, Look, it, it is in many ways a rhetorical posture. And it's a posture that is defined as much or more by what it's against as opposed to what it is for. It is decidedly against. Um the expert class, organized, powerful interests, uh, at least in its rhetoric, um, uh, established political arrangements, um, and it is for, ostensibly, a reclamation of authority and decision-making for everyday folk. And in that sense, at least superficially, it's fully consistent with democracy. Mm -hmm. What do you mean when... When our political system has been captured by parties that are out of touch and politicians who could give a damn, mm-hmm. what populism does is it reclaims authority and gives it back to the mm-hmm. people. Ah, that's the promise. Mm-hmm. It sells. Yeah, it sells. <laughs> it does sell. Mm-hmm. Um, it's worth thinking about the conditions under which it mm-hmm. sells. It doesn't always sell. We're in a, I, I, don't, I think it's more than a buzzword. I think that we are in such a moment today mm. And for all of the head-scratching that Trump um, f- forces uh, us to do, there are many ways in which what he's doing is perfectly straightforward. He's drawing straight from the populist playbook. Mm-hmm. He ran on a campaign that was arguing that our political system is rigged and it's broken and there are forgotten people in this country and he's going to stand up for them. And uh, once, when he's in office, he's drawing from the populist playbook in disparaging left and right, those political organizations and institutions that govern our democracy, our republic. Um, that's what populists generally do. Um, and so there is a, there's a rhetoric and a, and, a, and a promise, but what we tend to see is, and the danger of it, is a claim that, look, those institutions and those organizations have failed you, and so look at me. Look at me, like you. First, you can trust me because I'm an outsider, right? I haven't been. I haven't been playing in those sandboxes. I'm an outsider. Is the,
0: is the outsider approach is that consistent with all forms and examples of populist politics?
1: Nothing. Not n- I don't not know. Not universally. Not universally, but there are lots of examples mm-hmm. of this, mm-hmm. right? There are lots of examples of this. Berlusconi in Italy. Mm-hmm. This is what he does. He steps in in the aftermath of these massive corruption um, scandals plaguing all of Italy in, in the nineties. And he comes in and says, I'm an outsider. I'm not a part of them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I'm a successful businessman, so I can do it. Not only can I do it, I, I uniquely can do it. So look at me, right? Focus on me. And those who stand in the way of me, stand in the way of all of you. And when you begin to worry about the potential abuse of executive executive authority. We'll come to executive authority. I want to generalize it right now: is to say the, the potential abuse of political authority. There it is, right? Mm-hmm. Anybody in any station of our politics who makes that kind of a claim, right? Watch out, right? Because they got all their hands in your pockets. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, yes. This uh, this is a a moment to my mind that is being driven by populist. Um, sentiments, and we have a, a populist in the White House, which is for the first time.
0: So I mentioned earlier that it sells, and I think that we would all agree that um, our president today has a unique relationship with sales, and uh, click rates, and and uh, television. Watch me, hear me, listen to me. Um, I I wonder where the obsession, and I I, I use that word carefully, but the ability that all of us carry today to retrieve information immediately, where does that fit into the equation as we talk about the inefficiencies of government? Do you believe that it undermines good governance? Or does it promote better accountability and transparency of how our government works.
1: Okay, let me, I wanna, I wanna split that if I can into two parts. One part has to do with Trump's capacity to encourage all of us to fix our attention on him, mm-hmm. right? And that's a real thing. Um, and he's really good at it. The best. He may be Mm -hmm. certainly when you think about, uh, he's a president who doesn't have the clear backing of his party. Didn't have deep ties to his party who has very little political experience who, whose first year in office is defined primarily, certainly within Congress by failure, whose approval ratings are at 32%, right? In his first year in office. And if you, when you hear all that, you think, oh, this guy's done for, right? He's done for. It's not obvious that he's done for because he's the guy whose first year in office was defined by congressional failure and uh, uh, whose approval ratings is in the low 30s, who, who, who the country can't stop talking about. And that's a very powerful thing. Um, and it, it, it's a powerful in terms of stopping or, or deflecting, claims and arguments that are, are directed towards him. It's powerful in the sense of it, it drains the energy of a, an opposition and its ability to organize and get together and figure out what its voice is. Um, so that, right. So I don't know how, where are we going with this? I don't know where we're going with this. That's <laughs> the, that's the sort of don't underestimate this president mm-hmm. just because he's unpopular. doesn't mean that this guy is, 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 is weak. Mm-hmm. Um, the the where there was a second part
0: yeah so the other thought about accountability and transparency this is a
1: this is a long-standing issue right about a Mm trade-off on the one hand what we want to do is provide space for enlightened people to debate hard issues and make hard decisions and what you might think is that they ought to be given some privacy or they ought to be given that's a reason for giving longer terms in office Mm -hmm. right that's Mm -hmm. why members of the senate have six years members of the house have two years the senate the whole idea was that we're going to let the We're going to let the statesmen inhabit that chamber of Congress Mm -hmm. who are going to ask hard questions. Um, um, Just as we can think about ways in which there's that we don't want to have cameras running all the time. Right. That 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 drains the depth or reduces the depth of our discourse on the one hand. On the other hand, there are claims about the need for transparency and this this trade off is not new to our politics. This is why we got primaries. This is why in here in Chicago, right? In the '68 presidential election, people were rioting in the streets. I was rioting against a bunch of corrupt parties that weren't listening to the will of the people. And there was a claim that, damn it, we don't want you nominating those people. We want, we the people want to be able to say, have some say over who you're going to nominate. So we're going to have this thing called primaries. (laughs) which are born of those, those kinds of concerns. But we want more say and more transparency and more influence. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard to actually draw a line between those decisions and Trump, right? Wherein, if it's, it's impo- there's no way circa 1968, either party would have nominated somebody who was seen in such low regard by the, party, the, the, by the elite of their party. Uh, as Trump was seen in 2016. It was the primaries and his ability to win and win repeatedly that gave him inroads.
0: I, w- I want to present one more, more question and take some questions from, um, uh, from our, from our guests here. But uh, I'd like to put your scope on the horizon and the future of U S democracy um, for a second. Um, you've presented various arguments. One in the book, the constitution is outdated. Mm. It's not relevant to the Mm. needs that we potentially experience today. Separation of powers make it very difficult to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. I've heard you say that many times. I have said that. Um, Congressional decision-making is driven by short-term incentives. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd like to also present an argument that we may be missing. One is the American people and our culture in general, or broadly. Um, In the 80s, Reagan promoted a very well-known Argument that the government is not the solution, it's the problem. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that has shaped a lot of our perceptions and expectations of our own government Mm -hmm. over time. And therefore, we've probably pulled back civically more than maybe what the Constitution expects of us as citizens. Would you agree that Americans have either matured into preferring a passive form of governance? or we're just simply lazy?
1: Uh, I think we're in a bad equilibrium. We're in a bad equilibrium because most citizens have actually an endless appetite, very much including Republicans, Mm -hmm. for more government involvement. It, there's all kinds of domains of public life that we just sort of accept. Of course, the government's going to be involved, and the debate is do we shift a little bit here, do we shift a little bit there? But of course, they're going to attend to concerns about whether or not our meat is safe, right? Mm-hmm. And whether or not children are going to get schooled and whether or not, what 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 kinds of rules and regulations are going to govern international trade and on and on and on and on and on, right? And the size of the administrative has expanded massively. Mm-hmm in the last half century. And that's not just a product of Democrats having their way. It's decidedly not. On the one hand, right, you've got actually a widespread recognition that the government should be involved, a belief by citizens they should be involved in all kinds of things. Um, um, But to my mind, not enough attention to the capacity of the government, the willingness of government, the ability of the government to actually do those things especially well. And so, that's born. That's problems on both the left and the right. The left, that in the main wants to political left wants to expand the role of government, doesn't want to recognize that uh, some things that the government doesn't do especially well, because that's conceding something to the right. Mm -hmm, Right? mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. ah, you're right. You know, that's. Mm -hmm. So I'm just gonna. So the problem with our schools is that is not an issue, an issue of design. It's that we don't invest enough resources, right? We got to double triple down, right On the left. And on the right, there's um, every recognition of political failure is a rhetorical point in their failure. Mm-hmm. in their favor, mm-hmm. right They get to say, yeah, well, how much should we spend on that hammer? Yeah, is that a good use of our funds, right? What good did that do us? Mm-hmm. And they what the margin want to bring the government in? And they don't want to have the conversation that's of the form, well, how might we do things better? Because that is to admit that we might do things better and that, and that what is observed today as political failure need to be political failure tomorrow. Um, look, there are real and legitimate debates to be had about the purposes of government, the size of government, what the government should be in the business of doing, not be in the business of doing.
0: That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, And to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.